This is Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 320, and you're listening to The Daniel Glass Show, only on Drummer's Resource. This is it, right here. Uh-huh. Then you gotta add some with the little tricks. Ah, ah, you'll be swinging. Uh-huh. Right. It's The Daniel Glass Show on Drummer's Resource, offering a deeper look into Daniel's unique take on music, drumming, and life. Philosophy, motivation, musical deconstructions, and conversations with influential voices in the music industry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the podcast. I am, as always, your host, Daniel Glass. And today, uh, I'd like to take us back on a little journey, a little travelogue, as it were, to one week In 1996, uh, when I was out on tour with Royal Crown Review, as I was for most of the 1990s, and this sort of will give you a little window into what life is like on the road, the crazy things that happen, the crazy people that you meet, the crazy places that you find yourself. I'm sure those of you who are musicians who have spent time on the road will have many stories of your own like this. Uh, This happens to be one of mine. Uh, What I'd like to do is start by setting the stage and talking about what life was like in 1996 for myself and the band that I was in, a band called Royal Crown Review, a band that I was with for about 19 years. I still, uh, we still operate our business online, although we're not actively working anymore. But uh, I had originally joined this band back in 1994. In the spring of 1994, my first gig was March 31st. It's quite a band. It was doing something very, very different than the rest of the world was back in 1996. I will perhaps reserve other podcasts to get specifically into that. But for those of you who know Royal Crown Review, we were fascinated by the history and evolution of American music, what we found in older styles like swing and rhythm and blues and rockabilly, early rock and roll, even older stuff like 1920s. Uh, jazz, 1930s, big band swing, we sort of looked at that music as rock. And we tapped upon our experiences growing up as rock and roll musicians in, you know, the 70s and 80s, and sort of brought those two things together in a very kind of unique and interesting way. And it spawned a kind of what they called the the retro swing or the neo swing revival. And uh, so that was kind of what we were about. Again, I can offer more details down the road. By 1996, let's see, I joined in 94, and by 96, we were signed to Warner Brothers Records, and we were officially, quote-unquote, a national act. Now, what that actually meant was that we had a record deal with Warner Brothers. Ted Templeman produced our first two Warner albums, our only two Warner albums. Very famous producer, and and that's, again, maybe a story for another podcast. But we were signed to this label, but they weren't really sure about us and what we were doing. Here we were in the early 90s, grunge was on fire, Nirvana, the Seattle scene. And here we were dressing up in, you know, vintage 40s clothes, playing vintage music and, you know, vintage instruments and, and doing this whole trip that was really cutting against the grain. But it was very popular, it was very hot in LA. We were traveling more and, and getting, uh, you know, sort of blowing up across the country. So yeah, Warner Brothers said, sure, we'll sign you, but we're not going to give you any tour support. So when you go out on tour, you're still going to have to figure out how to make it all work yourselves. And the way that we made it work back in those days was we would rent RVs. I could fill up a whole podcast just talking about 
touring in an RV. Because remember, our, our band at this point was seven people. We had three horns, upright bass, guitar, vocals, and myself on drums. We also had something of a crew at that point. Uh, we had two people with us, one who was a driver who would sell merch, and the other who was like a tour manager and a sound guy. Also kind of common experience for bands that are getting their feet wet on the road. So we were in an RV that was meant for five people, and we had nine people in this RV. We would often drive at night after the gig, drive all night so that we could save money on hotel rooms. In our RV, being that we were <laughs> we were the band that we were, whatever closet space there was was filled to the brim with these very fancy, heavy vintage suits. You know, we were not a t-shirt and jeans band. And I remember the first RV tour we ever did, we literally got the RV. We were going to go out for two months. We ran onto this RV, immediately threw our suits up on the inside the small closet, and the post that was holding the pole up that supported all the suits immediately busted through the floor of the closet. And so one of our first things was we had to refurbish it, put down like a huge piece of plywood and set the post back in place so that you know we we didn't know what the hell we were doing back then we were figuring out as we went anyway the kind of tours that we would do at this time was we would do 60 show tours of the country meaning you know 50 or 60 shows usually in about 60 or 70 days i remember one of these tours was insanely grueling we did 23 nights in a row 23 one-nighters in a different city every single night before we actually had a night off. So it was brutal. And, you know, luckily we were, we were young, we were excited, things were happening for us. Um, but it was, it was insane. I mean, I look back on it now and I go, how did we ever pull this off? So in 1996, we're on this tour. And uh, I notice in every city that we get to that I'm reading, you know, I'm, I'm always looking up the free paper you know, the weekly paper to see what's going on in that city, who's playing, what's going on for the few hours we had off to walk around town. And on the front page of every one of those weekly papers was KISS. 1996, as you may recall, was the year that KISS put the makeup back on and headed out on the road with all the original members. Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley, of course, who've been doing it since the beginning, but for the first time since, I guess, the late 70s or early 80s, Peter Chris on drums, Ace Freely on guitar were joining them, and they were going back with the makeup. So this was the biggest tour in the world at this point, and we happened to be on the same tour trajectory as KISS. So in every city we went, we sort of started in L.A. where we were based, snaked up the West Coast, and then turned right and headed out into the Midwest. And every city we were in, Kiss had either just been there or they were coming there. And so we finally get to Denver, and this was, I, can, I actually looked up the date. This was July 7th, sorry, September 7th, 1996, Denver, Colorado. We were playing at the Bluebird Theater, and Kiss was playing at the McNichols Arena, of course. Now, I should also mention the scope of this KISS tour was pretty extreme because we would be in our little crappy RV. We'd be leaving town. Remember, we were driving all night. And often, I think this happened at least twice, you know, middle of the night, some highway in the middle of America, pitch black, and this cascade of trucks and tour buses would pass us. And you know, I, I would look out the window. I mean, you know, 20 trucks, 20 semis, 10 tour buses, caravanning. 
And I said to myself, I know I said to myself, that, that's the KISS tour. Unbelievable. So we get to Denver, Colorado. We're playing the Bluebird Theater. And our show, being that we were still more of a club band, we would play later at night. I think we actually went on stage at maybe 10 or 11 o'clock at night. KISS, being an arena band, would start at 8, and they'd be done by 9.30 or 10. So we do our show at the Bluebird. We're hot. The place is completely sold out. And after the show, the promoter comes up and says, you know, we also happen to be promoting the KISS show at McNichols Arena. And we'd like you to meet KISS's management, who we brought because they're in town and they came to your show and they loved it. So we meet KISS's management. They say, you know, guys, um, we just added on a second show here tomorrow night in Denver. And we'd, we'd love... If you want to come, you're more than welcome to be our guest. So our next show was in, I think it was in Nebraska or Iowa. I don't know. You know, the next state over from Colorado. But we happened to have the next day off. It was going to be a drive day for us. And we said, yeah, okay, I guess we'll do it. Now, you have to remember, Royal Crown Review was a quote-unquote swing band, jazz band. The guys in the band were jazz cats. I was one of the only guys in the band that actually admitted that I was a big rock fan or classic rock fan growing up or played that kind of music. And the other guys in the band were too cool for school in general. So Kiss, okay, you know, whatever. So we sort of, you know, those, there was myself and a couple other guys in the band were, were said, hey, I'd love to see Kiss, you know. And, and I remember when I was a kid, uh, when Kiss first came out, this would have been in the mid-70s, they were, they were big stuff. I wasn't the world's biggest fan, but I definitely... Um, didn't want to miss this experience, you could say. So the next night, we go to McNichols Arena. We pick up our tickets at Will Call. Lo and behold, they are front row center tickets. Our jaws drop to the floor um, because this is literally the hottest concert in the world at this point. It was sold out months in advance. Uh, you know, people paying exorbitant prices, the, the whole nine yards. And here we are presented with front row center tickets to see Kiss. So we go in. And we proceed to check out the show. Um, I have to say, we were completely blown away. Every single guy in the band, even the most hardcore, snobby jazz cat who had never listened to rock in his life or wasn't interested in rock. You know, we even had guys in the band that hated the Beatles. I'm not going to name any names, but it was like, you know, yeah, those guys just stole everything from the doo-wop bands, from the, you know, from the R&B bands. And what they did was just bullshit. Anyway, so... Needless to say, the band was amazing. The show was outrageous. And, you know, explosions everywhere. Gene Simmons spitting blood, flying over the crowd. Uh, Ace Frehley shooting out little torpedoes out of his guitar. You know, I mean, camp to the max. Most entertaining show. And if you've ever been to a Kiss show, you'll know what I'm talking about. Even if you hate Kiss, I highly recommend going to see a Kiss show. Great, great, great live band. Anyway... So we, we proceed to uh, have an amazing time. They, I think Paul smashed his guitar at the end of the night. One of our guys got a piece of Paul's guitar. Great. We have a great time. Now we're in trouble because we got to get to Nebraska. I think it was Lincoln, Nebraska, by the next day. So we drive all night after the Kiss show, and we're pretty exhausted when we get into Nebraska. But we go on, and it's all good. In the meantime, we sort of get the, uh, the uh, contact information from the uh the, the management so we're cruising along on our tour flash forward now we we're it's the next month it's now a, almost a month later october 2nd 
uh, October 1st, October 2nd. We're in Atlanta, and the KISS folks were like, hey, you're here. Why don't you come to the show? So now, not the whole band, three, three or four of us, we go see KISS again at the Omni Center. And uh, we've got, uh, you know, not front row anymore, <laughs> but, you know, great show again. We're enjoying Now we're getting into the spirit of things. And let's flash forward again. We keep touring, and we're down in Florida a few weeks later, and we get the call. KISS is looking for an opening band for their two Omaha shows, which are coming up at the end of October, October 23rd and 24th, 1996. And they want you to open. Our jaws collectively drop to the floor again. We can't believe it. Because, you know, we had been hearing stories about what it was like to open on this tour. Um, And it was horrible. Uh, We heard about really great bands like 311 and the Deftones, literally getting booed off the stage because people were so excited to see this KISS reunion with the makeup and everything that they were not interested in whoever was opening. They could care less. So we're excited, but we're somewhat trepidatious. And we just say yes. Uh, And by the way, this is another interesting side note to this, is that you would think, well, why wouldn't KISS take some other band out on the road with them as often happens on tours. Well, what we sort of learned later on was that, you know, they really, this was such a hot tour that they really didn't need to take anybody out as an opener. They didn't really need an opener. And what they were doing in general was sort of giving a lot of different bands, maybe even local bands in some places, a shot at, at the opening slot. So um, it was kind of a lucky break for us. And it was definitely an interesting uh, uh, opportunity, I guess you could say. So we now, it's like literally we have a couple days. Amazingly, I think we had an open day. We madly get our stuff together. We drive in our shitty RV uh, hundreds of miles, probably 1,000 miles from Florida up to Omaha. And here we are. Now, let's set the stage in Omaha. uh, The show was at the Omaha, I believe it was the Civic Auditorium or Civic Arena. Um, ah, the Civic Center is, is actually what it was called. It is a hockey arena. And as we discover, uh, Nebraska at this time was the last state in the country that actually had what's called festival seating. And what that means is that you don't get reserved seats to the show. When you buy a ticket, it's first come, first serve as far as where you're going to sit. So, whereas all these other bands that had been opening for KISS played to half-empty arenas because people didn't care about the opener and they just showed up and found their seats and, you know, came in time to see KISS, you know, the, the classic opening band uh, scenario, well, now we were going to be able to play in front of a completely full house of KISS fans, packed to the rafters. That was number one. Number two, we discovered, is that Omaha or Nebraska was one of the last states in the union to um, to have bar carts. So literally, people rolling these bar carts up and down the aisles, selling hard liquor <laughs> to the fans. Not something I'd ever seen before. Normally, if you want a drink, you got to walk to the concession and buy your drink there. No, here, literally, carts with full-on hard liquor service. So we were going to be playing for a completely packed house for two nights of very liquored-up Nebraskans, very excited to see Kiss. Uh, Somewhat intimidating. So we get, it's showtime now. We're, like, freaked out and pumped up. We go on stage, 
And our lead singer, thank God, Eddie, he always had the right thing. He always said the right thing to the crowd. And he said, he said, hey, everybody, good evening. We're Royal Crown Review. Give us 20 minutes and we'll give you kiss. And the first night, that actually worked. And we, we I, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen Royal Crown Review live, but we approached classic music as if we were a punk rock band or a metal band or a heavy rock band. Um, our history had been that, uh, and again, I won't go into too much detail, but, you know, the strangely enough, the scene that supported Retro Swing actually came out of punk rock. And the punk rockers, the original punk rockers in the 70s, you know, rejected high-gloss music like disco or arena rock. Uh, and, you know, punk rock was lo-fi, and it was all about um, rebellion, and you didn't have to even be able to play your instrument to be in a punk rock band. That wasn't the point. The point was to express youthful aggression and just, you know, stick your middle finger in the air to anything that, <laughs> that represented the mainstream. So as the punk rockers got older and, you know, were less interested in getting bashed around in the, you know, in the mosh pit, um, what emerged was that that first generation of punk rockers by the end of the 80s, say 10 years in, were interested in roots rock music, uh, early rock and roll, rockabilly, rhythm and blues. These styles of music, uh, American music, I should say, were, they had a lot of the same aesthetic as punk. They, at the time they were popular were rebellious forms of music, underground forms of music. Uh, they, um, especially rhythm and blues, was black music. A lot of white kids getting into black music was, of course, at the time in the 1950s, something that was, you know, a, a controversial um, uh, endeavor. And um, so, you know, the punk rockers and, and all these styles of music, I should mention, these early American styles, had a fashion sense that went with them. And, of course, punk, as it evolved really became about a fashion sense as well, as do many kinds of music. Uh, so at the time in the 1980s, if you were a punk rocker, you could go to Goodwill, you could find an old suit uh, from the 40s, you could find a cool vintage um, dress from the 40s or 50s, uh, you could throw that outfit on, you could still have your piercings, your purple hair. You know, the swing dancing that that the first generation of, of retro swing fans did was not... Uh, beautiful ballroom, uh, you know, East Coast or Lindy Hop. It was like slam dancing. It just was done in pairs. And that's what our world was like when I started in this band. So, um, you know, when we would play, we would play aggressively. When you walked out of an RCR show in the 90s, you felt like you'd been punched in the gut in the same way that you would feel uh, if you walked out of a great rock or punk show. That was our goal. Our goal was to, even though we had a horn section, upright bass, and we played jazzy chords with sevenths and ninths and thirteenths extensions on them, you know, we we were about bringing it. And you also have to remember that our, you know, when the band started, which was 1989, that was five years before I joined, you know, um, hair metal was still big. Sunset Strip, um, you know, all, all that stuff, Motley Crue. And then Nirvana, you know, came along, as I said, in, in, in the early 90s and hit. And what we were doing was so far out of left field. And anybody who knows L.A., it's a tough, tough music town. Everybody there is jaded because they've seen it all. They've done it all. So, you know, we were playing to people that were had no freaking idea what to expect of us. And we were used to just going out and beating the shit out of our audiences, 
because that's how we got their attention. That's how we got them to go, oh, wow, okay, I see. Like this swing stuff or rhythm and blues stuff is just like rock and roll. It just has a bit of a different look to it and a bit of a different sound to it. Um, But anyway, that was our thing. So when we went on stage to open for Kiss, we already knew what we were going to do, which was to get out there and throw every punch we possibly could and to be as you know, like a street gang. That's really kind of how we saw ourselves at that point, us against the world. And I think a lot of young bands see themselves this way and approach music this way, which is cool. That's one of the great things about about music and, and about youth and music and something new. So anyway, night number one, we open for Kiss. We go out. We say, give us 20 minutes. We'll give you Kiss. We throw everything we have at them. We get a pretty good response. I'm kind of stoked. They actually cheer. I got to do a little drum solo at the end of Hey Pachuco. Um, it was a solid 20 or 25-minute set. So then we go back the second night, and, uh, well, <laughs> totally different experience. Uh, these people were not happy to see us. Well, I guess they were to some degree. But I literally remember there was this one or two super KISS fans in the first five rows, because when you play in an arena, you really can't see beyond the first few rows. And this dude was standing there with both of his middle fingers up, basically flipping us off with all his might for 25 solid minutes. Like, literally, just like, fuck you, dude! It was was awesome. The guy was hilarious. So, you know, we had a good night, we had a bad night, but it was an absolutely incredible experience. Now, I have to give you a couple of other pieces of corollary stories around this because this was not the end of the story with us and Kiss. First thing was... Uh, I think Kiss was on show number 86 and 87 of this tour. And this was a grueling tour. And if you know about big national kind of arena tours, the person with the most difficult job is the lighting director, the LD, because before anything else can go up, they have to drop the, uh, the rigging and set up all the lights. And, of course, on a show like Kiss, that's quite extraordinary amount of stuff. And then they have to pull the lighting up, and then they can bring in the PA and the, the band's gear and all the rest of it. So the lighting people are in first and out last uh, for each show. And this show was so grueling. And, of course, Kiss is a very demanding band. Gene Simmons, who I will talk a, li- a little bit more about shortly, is a demanding boss. Um, obviously, you, everybody knows the stories about Gene Simmons, or many of you do. But, um, you know, uh, so they had been through... By show number 87 and 88, they had been through so many lighting directors that they were literally just referring to them by number. So I think they were up to LD number 14. The poor guy didn't even have a name. I remember Gene Simmons' bass tech meeting him, and I have not never seen such an angry, <laughs> angry human being. Uh, he was not a happy camper this far into this tour. So the crew was basically exhausted, burnt out, and pissed off. And um, and I don't want to, you know, paint that, that picture that Kiss runs a bad show. I'm just saying this was the, the at the moment where we were in this tour, this is what I saw. I, you know, I, I'm sure Kiss runs an extremely professional operation, so I don't want to badmouth Kiss in any way because they were great, their show was great, and they're truly, as Gene Simmons said, we're not a rock and roll band, we're a rock and roll brand. And, uh, and boy... Is that the truth? So Gene Simmons, sorry, not Gene Simmons, the band, in an effort to assuage their crew, they throw a party 
the second night in Omaha. So this is great because not only do we get to go to this party after the show, but we get to meet the band. And uh, and they were going to be there. So we we go to this party. It's a pretty low-key affair, actually, because if you know when you're on a tour, uh, when you have time off, generally you're not sightseeing. You're passed out, sleeping, just getting catching up. Uh, in between shows. It's a long two months on the road. America is a big, big country. And I don't care if you're in a bus or a Learjet, uh, two months on the road is two months on the road. And I've done it at many different levels. Um, and I can assure you that it's it's exhausting. But um, so we go, we meet the guys, and uh, Gene says, yeah, I've, I've, I've come down and seen you guys at the Derby before, you know, and, and uh, like I said, the Derby, where we started in, in L.A. was, um, when I joined the band in 1994, was just taking off as ground zero of the retro swing, um, you know, movement. It was the place to go in Los Angeles for about a year or two. Every time we played, there were literally, the line went out the door, up the block, around the corner, and down the block on the other side. And it would take people an hour and a half to get in. It was like Studio 54, in a way, in its own way. It was incredible. It was something absolutely incredible to be a part of those few, first few years, 94, 95, 96, when we were the house band there, before we really started um, you know, being on the road more than we were in L.A. So, that, of course, it being the hot spot in L.A., L.A. being what it is, uh, it was Celebrity Central, uh, a lot of unbelievable people came through that door, um, and I guess Gene Simmons had been one of them. So, um, needless to say, uh, that was our experience with Kiss, uh, and it was a great one. And um, now, uh, let me just add on that that same week, we actually opened for Neil Diamond. Uh, it could not be more of a 180-degree uh, experience. Uh, literally the same week, maybe, I think what had happened was on that drive from Florida to um, Omaha, we flew back to LA for a day. We, we would do that frequently because we did a lot of big corporate events in LA and other kinds of things. And then we would fly back and meet up with our RV in another city. So while the RV was making its way from Florida to Omaha, uh, we were, uh, um, we went back to LA, uh, at least for part of that. The memory's a little foggy at this moment. But what we did in L.A. was we went down to some place, I think, I want to say like Newport Beach, Huntington Beach, somewhere in the South Bay or south of Los Angeles. Uh, And they had been opening, they'd been doing this new venture. Now, this was 1996. Record stores were still uh, very much happening. And um, I think Best Buy teamed up with Tower Records. That's what I want to say. I'm not sure. I looked it up. I couldn't find it. But they were creating a, they wanted to create a chain of of mega stores that were called the Wow Store. Wow. Kind of a stupid name. But the Wow Store, which would have, which combined a a Best Buy, which, you know, sells uh, electronic gear, stereo gear, TVs, that kind of stuff, uh, with... Um, Tower Records. So it'd be a combination record store, retail store for all of your musical uh, and entertainment needs, I guess. So they had a grand opening of the Wow Store in this somewhere south of LA part of town. And Neil Diamond was booked and Royal Crown Review was booked. I don't know how that happened. Usually how those things did happen back in the day was that um, the record companies 
would pitch whatever act that had a new album or that they wanted to get happening. I remember this is this is another great story. Uh, one time outside of Chicago, this was again maybe a little later, ninety seven or ninety eight. We did a um, a thing for the Warehouse Records. So remember Warehouse Records? They had, they were a huge national chain, and what they would have every year or every quarter, every six months, they would have events for their staff in that region, meaning all the managers of all of the warehouse record outlets in a particular region would come together and uh, it would be, they'd throw a party basically for them over a day or two and they would see a bunch of, of musical acts for free. So we did one of those in LA. I remember Johnny Lang was on the bill, but the one in Chicago was pretty amazing. It was us, uh, Take Six, um, a, a local Chicago band, I'm trying to remember uh, what they were, another swing band from Chicago, uh, and a completely unknown, really smoking hot 16-year-old singer named Britney Spears, who, uh, like I said, completely unknown. And I remember coming in for the sound check. We'd had a late night in Chicago. I was sleeping in the tour bus. And the crew was like, okay, your gear is set up. Come in and sound check. So I got off the bus. I went in, and we had to wait a couple minutes because this really hot girl was doing her sound check. Now, this event was in a conference room of a hotel. And so Brittany was, she had two dancers with her and a headset mic, and she was, quote, unquote, singing. I'm not even sure if she was singing, along with tracks. And, of course, the most important thing of her act, dancing. So... You know, again, no one had ever heard of her, and she was, uh, I was sort of like, really? This is what they bring to the Warehouse Records event to to push as their new act? Where's the band? Where's the music? Where's, you know, where's anything? Well, you know, far be it from me to uh, have any any understanding of how the the record industry, where where it was headed, that that this was the future of the music business, essentially. Um, But I just remember being kind of amazed at how, thin it was you know here's this girl singing with a bunch of backup tracks and two dancers and that was her performance and i remember it was hilarious after her performance she went on before we did she sat at this tiny little table maybe it was even a you know those desks you would have in school where the where you had the 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 chair and a desk combo and she sat in one of these things signing eight by tens and nobody was in line there was like two people there to, to to get her eight by ten and then six months later, I'm on the road and I turn on MTV and there's Hit Me Baby one more time. And I went, uh-oh, uh, this is going to be monstrous. So that was another little interesting factoid. But anyway, not to get too far afield, but I love, you know, thought you might be interested in hearing about the early Britney Spears, uh, the Wow Store in California. And we had the chance to open for Neil Diamond, which was really cool. Now, my mom was a huge Neil Diamond fan when I was a kid. And so I, you know, I liked some of his songs. Um, And uh, more importantly for me, the guy that was playing drums with him, who had been playing drums with him for many, many years at this point, was a drummer named Ron Tutt. And uh, for those of you who are Elvis Presley fans, you may know that that Ron Tutt was Elvis's drummer, all from the late 60s when he first came back after doing all the movies up until the time of his death in 1977. And if you ever have seen any of those famous movies, um, particularly Aloha from Hawaii, uh, every time there's a straight-on shot of Elvis, you see that bearded guy who's playing like Animal with a huge blue sparkle Ludwig kit, and uh, that's Ron Tutt, uh, double bass 
So me being a fan of, of Elvis and rockabilly and roots music, I was super excited to meet Ron. And I, I actually did not end up meeting him at that particular show. Um, we were, everyone was kept far at bay from Neil Diamond. Um, but it was pretty unusual. I mean, we played, and there was a bunch of our fans there, and then Neil Diamond played, and all these middle-aged women came out of the woodwork. I don't know if there was any panty or brassiere throwing that was done that night, but there was lots of middle-aged female hysteria. And uh, I would have to say that I put Neil Diamond's hairdo up there with Gene Simmons and James Brown as being the something not of this world. I am not sure how those three guys got their hair to do what it did. <laughs> but, and I don't think they were wigs, um, but very remarkable and unusual hair. So maybe I'll put a picture of Neil Diamond up on the uh, circa 1996 uh, up on the show notes for this, for this page. And I'm definitely going to put up a couple other things in the show notes. I'll put up uh, the link uh, to the KISS tour dates for that particular Let's Put the Makeup Back on tour. It had its name. It had its own name. I can't remember what it was called. Live, Reborn Alive or something. I don't know. But I'll, I'll put the link up for that. I'll put uh, the uh, – I still have a, a copy of the, uh, um, the, the, the schedule for the, tour, for the Gene Simmons stuff. Uh, Gene Simmons, the kiss, the, the, you know, what time we went on, what time kiss went on, et cetera, et cetera. I'll, I'll post that and, and we'll maybe throw up a picture of Neil Diamond and some stuff about Ron Tut. I ended up, by the way, getting to know Ron Tut a few years later when I started actively interviewing a lot of the great drummers of the thirties, forties, fifties, and sixties. Um, and I ended up interviewing him and doing a big feature about him for a drum magazine called stick it magazine, that Zorro, for those of you who are drummers and drum fans, Zorro was editing at the time. And it was great because uh, I got to know Ron fairly well. He's a great guy. Amazing stories, amazing career, you know, talking about his time with Elvis and what that was like. Um, maybe I'll see if I can find a copy of Stick It and uh, post that review as or that, that, uh, that feature as well. But people don't know this about Ron Tut. He was uh, in the Jerry Garcia band. Uh, which was Jerry Garcia's solo project, aside from The Grateful Dead. He played on the first two Billy Joel albums in the studio. He played on a tremendous number of hits um, and uh, has had just the most unbelievable career. And he's still active with Neil Diamond today, as far as I know. Uh, So, Ron Tut, Neil Diamond, Kiss, 1996, Royal Crown Review, A Week in the Life, as it were, Fun Times, Good Memories, and uh, one little, like I said, sort of a, a peek into a very interesting life um, that one takes on when one decides to devote oneself to music and uh, just goes with what, with what happens. Uh, so I, I was going to finish this podcast by sharing a postscript about how RCR ended up working with Gene Simmons as part of his Family Jewels television show 10 years later. I think it was around 2005 or 2006. But being that we are 36 minutes into this podcast, I think I'm going to save that and actually create a separate podcast uh, just about that story because it's it's so good. I could s- spend some time talking about that, that uh, experience we had of uh, we were essentially we did three episodes of Gene Simmons' uh, Family Jewels uh, television show, his, his reality show uh, that he had with his family um, on the A&E network that was quite successful, ran for a while. So 
That is for another day and another time. In the meantime, if you are enjoying this podcast, please uh, follow me on Facebook. I have a really uh, cool page called Daniel Glass Drummer, Author, Educator. I'm posting all kinds of um, interesting old music videos, doing analysis, breakdowns, and uh, lots of cool motivation quotes and interesting thought-provoking stuff. So if that titillates your fancy, please uh, give us a follow over there. And of course, um, make sure that you go to iTunes and rate or review this podcast. Your feedback means a lot to me. And uh, the more that you rate and review, the you know the higher you know, the search engine optimization, blah, 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 all that stuff. Um, so the last thing I would say is if you have questions, comments, feedback, uh, if there are topics you would like me to cover on future broadcasts, podcasts, uh, please do let me know. Uh, be in touch. Uh, you can always email me off of my website. Um, you can send me a message on Facebook. I'm reachable. All right. Well, thanks. And until our next little adventure, I hope you all have a wonderful day and keep swinging by all means. Bye.